Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now and we're lowering the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Whiskey Topic. It's Mark Bialock. Jamie Johnson, unfortunately, is on assignment today, but we have exciting guests. Uh, one one of these, um, um, I, I will say that uh, Beryl's been on my radar for a long time, largely because of one of the listeners of the podcast uh, and uh, a frequent guest, new bourbon drinker. Uh, he's really, every time he came to Canada, he's like, here, you got to try some of this barrel bourbon stuff. And uh, I was always very excited to to try the what what he brought over, and it was like here's yeah here's some pappy here's some BTAC, but really excited about barrel, and uh, that's kind of how the conversation always started. Um, so I'm very very happy to have the national director for barrel, uh, Will Short. Will Shragas on the podcast. As as always, I get the names wrong, but uh, Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for coming on. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh. It's really a wonderful break to the day in otherwise sending passive aggressive emails to distributors. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, it's, I love talking to people about our brand, about whiskey in general. And I've been trapped for so long now, uh, in the Hudson Valley, which is idyllic, but still feels trapped. And, uh, yeah, cause I've, you've, you've got this, you're in the Hudson Valley now, but you, you've lived in, uh, Napa Valley. You've been worked for Brooklyn. You've kind of worked as a, uh, in this kind of Somalia district. You've been a, uh, a bartender. You've done it all. So I, I'm assuming your home setup now is perfect. You're making yourself the, the perfect cocktails, the perfect brunches, the perfect, uh, dinners every day. Like you must be living the life right now, you know, as I, much as one can in lock, lockdown. Anyway, I wish you were right. Uh, I actually live in Brooklyn still. I am at my parents' house in Woodstock, New York in the Hudson Valley. So, uh, I'm actually talking to you with uh, some whiskeys that I helped design on my left and some childhood tres- chess trophies on my right. I'm in my childhood bedroom. Uh, and I, I am not complaining because uh, I love my apartment in Brooklyn, but it's sort of right in the middle of where things got really scary. And my parents offered to let me work out of their house sort of indefinitely. And it, oh, that's it's nice. been an amazing yeah. help, but it is also... Uh, strange to go from being on the road three weeks out of the month and traveling around the country, talking to people about whiskey to being in the same house with your parents <laughs> as an adult for 10 weeks. Um, wow. There's a sign on my door that says doing interview right now. It makes me feel like I'm in high school again. Um, <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah, I do live in Brooklyn. Uh, I lived in Napa Valley for about a year. I studied the Culinary Institute out there. Uh, I really thought I was going to go into wine uh, and I learned pretty quickly when I moved back to New York that uh, the the discipline needed to be a sommelier is uh, a little too polite for my professional tastes. Uh, I <laughs> found myself resenting customers instead of wanting to serve them. And I pretty quickly moved into the retail and auction world. And I was uh, transferred from domestic wine to spirits just for need of person who knew how to use a computer at the company I was at. And that was right when the the whiskey boom started escalating in the way that we all know it. It was when the fine and rare Macallans went from uh, always available for $15,000 to have to get (laughs) on a list to spend $30,000. And uh, Pappy went from 400 to 2000 in a couple of years. And and, uh, really luckily I, I got to oversee a pretty extensive fancy whiskey and spirits in general program, uh, and it was wonderful, but retail is a bit of a grind as well. And I was working about yeah. an hour away from my house. Um, and I really missed the the wine world that was m- more concerned with history and provenance and all the nerdy details that we all love. 
Right. Uh, and so I got offered a job with uh, what was then called the House of Agricole and is now called uh, Spiribom. It's a, a French rum producer um, and importer into America that does rum Clément and rum JM and at the time rum Demoiseau and now does Chairman's Reserve. Um, huh. And the, the head of that company in America, Ben Jones, really took a chance on me because I had never worked for brands before. Um, and then they had a lot of personnel shuffling and I went from the like rum agricole ambassador in New York to the distribution manager of the East coast in Texas in like six months. Um, uh, yeah. and, uh, I did that for about two years and I had always been in touch with Joe, the founder of barrel, uh, because I met him when I was in retail. Um, and we stayed in touch and he eventually approached me and said, uh, you know, the product's selling really well in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut. And, we're ready to go national and I want you to be the person to do it. Uh, write a job description and tell me what you want your business cards to say. Let me know when <laughs> you want to start. And we talked about it for a while and I, I, it took about six months for me to extract myself from the job I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a little more than four years ago now, which has flown by. And I think about, yeah, it must you know, we have yeah. this amazing picture and like wall in our facility now that has all of the different, not every batch, but every different label that we've designed a bottle of it uh, mm -hmm. up and it's grown. And it, it, it was two labels, American whiskey, the batches and bourbon, the batches when I started. And I think we're at like 48 now. Um, right. And everyone has been the most challenging, most exciting new thing when we did it. Uh, and I, I look at it now and it's like, shit, that was, uh, am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yeah, I guess. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> um, and it, that was uh, that was only four years, and it's forty-eight products. Right. Um, I think about all the things we're working on all the time, and I, I think it's a little bit of, of a reflection of Joe's open-mindedness and willingness to to always want to be the new thing out and not rest mm -hmm. on his laurels, and also the the consumers and the industry being open-minded and pushing for new things and us designing a, a production style that allows us to respond really quickly to what people want. So long as we've spent a couple years sourcing and learning about it. Right. Um, and so now there's a, you know, we're still a small company. We're about 12 people, but in terms of our sales and our footprint, we're very solidly medium. We're available in 46 States in America. Um, we are like kind of quietly one of the, biggest in completely independently owned whiskey companies in, in the United States now, which is, and hopefully Canada soon. Um, but it's, we're like a 12, 13 person company production, HR sales, everything all together. Um, yeah. And I mean, it, it's such a wonderful story too, because you, uh, you know, I'll give the kind of the, the, the highlight view from like a consumer perspective, but you're, you started releasing uh, barrel bourbon in in batches and so one two three four onwards and uh, you were kind of telling me for the podcast that you have you know one two batches on it at any one time when one batch sells out you kind of introduce the next batch mm -hmm. um but every batch tastes different so it's not intended to be you know this isn't like uh you know your your booker's uh uh small batch or what have you each each batch is distinct, distinctively different so you know consumers will kind of have their favorite flavor or favorite profiles but they're also all cast strength high proof and then you've kind of moved into other products the rise and, and other things as well so you, you've got and now you've got all these other products coming out as well uh to kind of complement your 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 inventory that's pretty amazing uh especially because i find the flavor profile always very uniquely interesting 
like in a way that's like some of the earlier batches i'm like i don't know this doesn't taste like uh kentucky bourbon but it just tastes like an interesting version of a, of a whiskey of a bourbon it's high proof and it's got the oakiness and the flavor and the complexity to it and it's it always tastes unique to me every time i taste something from you it's it's so distinctively unique and I, that that i find fascinating i feel like we should hire you to rewrite our mission statement um our philosophy about producing whiskeys uh is sort of rests on two pillars the first is that we are concerned with making the best thing we can at any moment and we are not concerned with consistency or being able to or being able to reproduce anything and right uh that really starts with joe and how he founded the company making a decision very early on that if the target is making the same thing we made last time, then the target cannot be making the best thing we can make. Mm -hmm. uh, and the second pillar is that we do everything at cask strength. When we're talking about what internally we would call product development or innovation, but really making new whiskeys, uh, almost everything is on the table for us in terms of how to make it taste and smell and exciting and how to talk about what we did. Uh, right. The one thing that's not on the table is using water in production. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is a philosophical thing in terms of what water does and its uh, unfortunate ability to sort of break apart other molecules as it's sitting in whiskey. But it's also because the decisions about knocking things down and then blending them or blending them and knocking it down and not knowing how it's going to be, it's just we don't have the capacity to think about that. And so right. we focus on being the best at blending at cask strength. Everything we release is designed to be consumed, not that we mind if people add water to it, but to be in balance at the proof it it was blended at, at using all of the barrels to their full extent in the way they were showing when we decided to harvest them. Um, and I think that there's some romance to doing it that way because you sometimes don't know what you lose when you knock things down in a blending process. And uh, for us, we like to have that rule for ourselves. And it has allowed us to have this really robust, flavorful house style that I, I'm glad you like. And I hope, uh, you know, a lot of other people appreciate. Um, yeah. Yes. I mean, alcohol content and spice are kind of opposite, right? Because if you if you get a real spicy dish and you're like, oh, this is too spicy, there's 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 no going back. You've already loaded it in with habaneros and spicy sauce and it's all over the place and you you can't make that taco any less spicy. But with alcohol content, if you find it's too much alcohol, you can always just add a water and it's, it settles it down, right? But I, I guess you want to start the opposite way of food. You want to start as high proof as possible and give the consumer the opportunity to water it down if, if they do. But I honestly don't know, you know, I mean, I think we all have our tolerance for alcohol content, but it does. Um, and generally, there's the with the that that herbal kind of complexity when you get into those herbal black teas, uh, minty notes and, and those kind of notes, those really dissipate really quickly with water. I mean, you, you'll add a few drops of water. It's fine. But then if you water, you know, down a bit more, you lose that complexity. It's gone. It, it's, it's just your most palates won't pick it up. Yeah, I uh, far be it for me to tell someone not to put water or ice in their alcohol. I mean, first of all, there's a lot of spirits that that I water down and put ice in. But also, if you ever have someone on this show who works for a spirits producer and they're hating on people drinking things on the rocks, then they need to rethink their career path because if someone's enjoying a product that you represent, you should never slap them on the wrist for it. But uh, water does quite a bit in, in changing the way that things taste. And so my advice to people in talking about tasting spirits is always make sure that you appreciate the thing that you're consuming or the thing that was given to you or the thing you're spending your money on 
the way that it was designed first and then decide mm-hmm. how you want to enjoy it. Uh, often even the smallest change will, will volatize the way that the spirit's sitting in the glass. But it also, if you think about how many hundreds or thousands of different molecules are in a whiskey, uh, a couple drops of water is more of the percent of that thing than some of the flavonoids might be. There's a lot yeah. of flavonoids that are in the low single digits or double digits of parts per million. Um, and, and as humans, we still notice them. We use the phrase uh, perception threshold in our blending a lot, which is uh, when we are putting batches together, uh, we often hit a limit based on the availability of one of the one of the ingredients we have in our stocks. But we also sometimes hit a limit in that if we try to do more, we lose the really small notes that we love about the batch, even if it still has the the driving force. Right. Uh, because when you look at five or 10 or 20 or 30 barrels of bourbon, there's so much of them that are the same. There's so much ethanol and so much water. And then so much of the like general American oak tannin and cogener set that is like mm-hmm. pretty standard. It's the, the little intricacies that make one barrel a different ingredient than another barrel in a blend. And often it's only one or two or five of the barrels that you're using that, that have those in a way that you can perceive them. And so right. when you blend it out to 20, suddenly you're looking at only 25% of the ingredients have the thing that, that you want to still show. If you go to 30 or you go to 40, it may disappear completely. It's not like it, it taste isn't linear in the way that you're looking at balance. And so, uh, it's strange that we got on this topic from water because usually I start talking about perception thresholds when people ask blending questions, but, uh, you know, we choose not to use water as a rule for ourselves in production and to distinguish ourselves and, uh, be able to always say we blend at cask strength and we release whiskeys at cask strength. Um, but in drinking things, uh, water is wonderful to tone things down, but it does change the balance of the spirit quite a bit. Uh, not in a bad way, just in a way that's good to know about while you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, and, and everybody's palate's different. So where, where, uh, you know, where I may not pick up a certain, you know, minty note at at forty five percent alcohol, other palates will, and that might be their, you know, it, it might be uh, that that kind of palate perception also changes. But I also, um, uh, I, when I do tastings, I also typically I have water on the on the table, but I typically I do it at at for the same reasons, philosophical reasons, as you say, like have it first how it's been designed, but then of course change it to however you want it if, if you know uh with ice with water however you want to have it uh but i do like tasting it at that level um and then i do like that concept like you know if you're taking all these barrels and you've got this flavor profile going for it's really tough to keep to hold on to it uh with all, all the all the test blending that i've done at at companies that's one thing i've learned i'm like wow this flavor goes away really quick if you you can blend it out really rapidly um, and, and then it's gone from the consumer's perspective, uh, as well. Yeah, that's cool. I, I do, um, um, with, with regards to water too, I think the nice thing is the difference today than maybe 10, 20, 30 years ago, certainly, uh, was you have a consumer that's seeking cast strength. Yeah, whiskeys, for sure. Uh, whereas 20 years ago, that was probably not going to be a successful idea. In the world of bourbon, even five or six years ago, that was, they existed, but there were not that many of them. Yeah. Um, and the cask strength offerings were often the premium version of something that was already on the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I, I find with those products, a lot of times the whiskey's not reformulated. It's just like it's blended and knocked down for the standard release, and then it's blended and not knocked down 
for the cast strength release. And a lot of times that formulation was designed to be at 40% or 42 or 45%. And so it's actually not really in balance at cast strength. Um, yeah, that's a good point, right? Because I mean, sometimes it's it's like Tioki or too stringent and, and they watered it down to 45% and it's fine, but then they bought a lot of cast strength and you're like, eh. Or it's just, it wasn't the the way that the tannin balance and sweeten ba- sweetness yeah. balance was designed is it it was taking into account that 10% or 20% of water that isn't there anymore. Um, yeah, and you do, you guys do a great job with that, uh, that kind of the oak tannins and, and the, the oakiness or the, the, the oak flavor bombs, as we sometimes know them in the, in the bourbon world, you really do kind of that, that heft on the palate. Everything I've had from you has had a very interesting kind of heft on the palate that's been relatively unique. So, you know, you, you kind of look at the extremes, like the, the stags of the world where it's literally, it's such a heavy oak bomb. You can literally feel the alcohol evaporate off your palate as, as you, as you sip it. Um, yours has always had a lot of control over, over that flavor profile. And I haven't had a lot of, uh, but I've, I've probably up to maybe five or six that I've tasted of the different batches and they've all had a very kind of unique, unique palate experience. So, so tell me what you're, you're going for there. Um, well, all of our releases that have a batch number, so bourbon batch one through 24, soon to be 25, rye batch one through three, um, especially the more recent ones, they are blends of different lots of barrels that we've acquired from different distilleries around for bourbon America and for ride the world over the past six years or so. And so there is almost always at least one component that we view as out of balance in the too oaky or too tannic way. And we use that as backbone. Um, Mm -hmm. And knowing that you have that card to play in blending allows you to focus on sweetness and also like sort of what category of sweetness you want like a more what i call like brown sugary sweetness or like a molassesy or a honeyed sweetness um and and also the like the fruit character where it's like almost every bourbon and i'm sure you've been over this with other people like every bourbon has like a sweetness component uh what you would call spice component some sort of fruit component and a tannin component and we could Mm -hmm. all write really bland tasting notes for any bourbon in the world talking about those things uh what distinguishes them from each other are like what quality of sweet component and what type of fruitiness are you getting out of it and how powerful is the oak and is it an astringent tannin or, uh, or something that you, like really uh, evokes burnt wood or green wood. Um, thinking about uh, one or two of the ingredients we use as a structural ingredient and the other ingredients as flavor ingredients allow us to kind of focus on one thing and then blend back into the balance we want or mouthfeel we want with the second thing. Um, and it's not the way that we always end up getting to the final blend, but it is a, a nice bullet to have in the gun or card to play in terms of uh, balancing batches. Cause it's really hard to think about both flavor and structure at the same time when you're blending things. Right. Fair, fair enough. And, and, um, I guess is uh, purchasing barrels has become tougher over the years as there's been this explosion of businesses, but I'm from my understanding, it's getting easier again. Like I guess you have enough inventory where you're controlling that, that, that access. Yeah. I think first of all, we are lucky or I'm lucky because of Joe's dedication to the company growing that we, our library of stock is enough for us to have years worth of our own production at this point but mm-hmm. we're not blending it down. We're acquiring barrels faster than we're using them um, okay. so that we have more ingredients to play with, but also so that as we grow, we're not going to be at the mercy of the 
of the market for distillate. Um, right. We have never seen difficulty buying barrels. And I think that that is uh, for a few reasons. The first is that Joe is really easy to work with. And so uh, like any industry, if you pay your bills on time and you pick up the phone when people call you and you're responsive and polite, uh, you wind up on the on the top of people's lists to call. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, that uh, we're not really worried about consistency. And so anytime there's a set of barrels available that has fallen through the cracks, uh, no one wants to launch a brand around it because they're not going to be able to make it again. Whereas for us, if there's one barrel or 200 barrels of something peculiar and interesting, like we want that and we'll find a way to use it. Um, right. And right. so we, we haven't seen any problems because we work really hard to be easy to work with, but also that uh, our, our requirements are, is it interesting? Is, the, is it priced appropriately? Um, does it either expand upon or back up the things that we know that we're going to need over the next couple of years. And the answer to so many things is yes in that situation. Right. Um, and so many producers around the world have amped up production also. Um, and so, uh, you know, sourcing is a whole different conversation, but uh, we sit in a place that I, that I am really happy with and comfortable with in terms of, uh, we're not, we're not worried about sourcing whiskey because there's, there's so much good whiskey in the world. Um, yeah. I mean, that makes sense too, because I, I guess, you know, if you, if you're buying low volumes, it might be a different story, but kind of you're, you're at the, that, that now, I'm having your, um, I'm, I've just poured a sample of your barrel rye, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, batch number three. So I'm assuming, uh, rye is a more recent, um, more recent direction you went with. Yeah. So we launched our first rye, I think it was about three years ago. Um, and the first release of rye was, structured mostly around a couple of different sets of barrels that that we became available to us in America uh, that had really high malted barley content. And mm-hmm. so it's this really wonderful, like both malty, but also very rye forward. There's a lot of malted rye in one of them. Um, uh, and it, but, but it was all in America, domestic rye. Uh, the right. second release we did incorporated this very peculiar, awesome set of uh, 100% malted rye single malt from Poland. Um, and so some domestic rye and Polish single malt rye, uh, which uh, at this point, I think we're the only producer in America that has access to those barrels. Um, wow. And that was a fascinating whiskey, but it was very much a world whiskey. Uh, what we found in America is that people who drink single malt and people who drink Canadian rye and people who drink Armagnac and rum loved rye batch too. But mm-hmm. people who drink American rye were confused by it because of how much malt and how much pot still character it had. Right. Um, and so rye three uses those same three ingredients, the Indiana rye and the Tennessee rye and the Polish rye, but it also, it uses a higher percentage of the 95.5 MGP mash bill from mm-hmm. Indiana. And it also uses some 14 year old, uh, Canadian rye in it too, that has a very sort of like green apple twangy note. Um, and oh, so that's hilarious. I, uh, I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I, I just, I, I was looking at my notes uh, when I was tasting this earlier and, and I did pick up, like, I was like, huh, this kind of reminds me a little bit. Of, I, the Canadian note was, was just there. I, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, Canadian rye is this category like people love, but it's hard to put your finger on what you love about it sometimes because it's often at a pretty high proof, but it is strangely easy to drink. 
-hmm. I find it to be like a pretty mellow spirit. And then American rye is often this like dill spice bomb. It's so concentrated and there's so much new oak on it. Um, But there isn't a category for world blended rye. You know, in America, like calling things rye, you sort of have to stay in the American rye realm. Um, And there's a couple of other companies that are, that are doing it. But uh, what I love about rye three is I think it satisfies the rye drinkers desire in America, but it also puts together some flavor profiles that are really iconic of the place that they're from. And you don't see next to each other very often. Um, And so we, the response to rye three has been pretty humbling. Um, It, it, it's selling quickly, but also, uh, the reviews it gets and just the sort of like anecdotal emails we get from people about it. Uh, it just makes us really proud of it. Um, and so there's, there's still some left in our warehouse cause it was a pretty big batch, but it's, it's moving through quickly. And, uh, it makes me kind of sad that we haven't been able to do events for the past couple months because I, I imagine the rye would have found itself into more of the like welcome cocktails and, free pours and things like that, that we'd be doing at events if we were running them right now, uh, just because of how, how much we love this batch. Yeah. I, I tasted it completely blind. I, I didn't know other than it was, you know, labeled as a ride. I didn't really know much about it. I didn't know anything about it actually. So I, I kind of looking at my notes, I was like, Oh, this is so interesting that the kind of flavor components that I got from it. Um, it is, it is really, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great ride. Um, how does, uh, explain to me legally within kind of American law, it's considered an American rye or, or like a rye whiskey. It's, and- uh, yeah, so it is what would be called a blend of rye whiskeys. Or, mm-hmm. Um, and that means that all of the, and I'm going to have to put a disclaimer on this cause I, I'm not looking at a TTB website right now and I'm, I'm going off the top of my head, but, uh, my understanding is that that means that all of the components are considered rye in the place that they are made. And so right. uh, the Canadian rye is a rye whiskey in Canada, mm-hmm. and the uh, Polish rye is a rye whiskey in America. The Polish rye, I believe, would also qualify as a rye whiskey if it was produced the same way in America. But, uh, but in Poland, it's a rye whiskey. And the American components are rye whiskeys in America. And so... Uh, the important thing in the labeling in America is to say a blend of rye whiskeys uh, because each of them is a rye whiskey and American law allows you to label based on the, the place of origin of the, of the distillery. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Right. And then you, you can't label it a straight rye, for example, on the bottle, I assume, but it's, it's uh, you can use the kind of the rye designation. Yeah. I, I don't know. The, the rules are so weird in US. <laughs> they are in Canada as well. Um, no, th- this is um, a, a great example. I, I had no idea that uh, it had contained Polish rye in it as well. Um, but I swear I, I picked up the, uh, I was, I was kind of confused cause I, I was, I never really tried placing it cause I'm like, okay, I kind of get the MGP notes. I kind of get, um, and then like, I, I don't have, uh, and I just couldn't get where everything else was from. She couldn't tell you anything was from Tennessee. Thought Canadian like it had Canadian like qualities in it but not not there it's a really nice rye it's a uh, fantastic being being a very uh uh very uh, committed rye drinker in Canada that's a that's a great example of a, thank you, of a rye thank right you so there. much yeah uh Joe references lot 40 cask strength a lot when he's talking about mm-hmm. his favorite ryes and I think that uh getting to use Canadian rye at high proof was uh something that he had been excited about for a long time before it, it made sense within our company. But now for the past couple of years that we've been using it, it's certainly a mainstay and something we keep our eye out for a lot. 
Um, well, send some to Canada if you can, because uh, the Canadian audience that loves their Lot 40 cast strength uh, yeah. will uh, will really uh, jump on this for sure. Yeah, I remember I was in, I think, Montreal a couple of years ago, and I just assumed I'd be, I was dumb. Like, I just assumed I'd be able to find it easily mm-hmm. because everyone in America talks about it. Like, oh, yeah, you can only get it in Canada. But, like, I couldn't find it in Canada either. Uh, yeah. And so I learned my lesson. So I'll have to pick your brain the next time I'm going across the border, whenever that might be to be able to find myself a bottle. I have a little mini bottle from a whiskey fest, but I don't have any, I don't have a full 750 of it anywhere. No. And I don't think, um, I got to check. I think the LCBO might still have uh, some, uh, in Ontario here, might still have last year's uh, law 40 cast strength, but, uh, the rumor is there's not going to be a law 40 cast strength this year. Oof. Um, so, you know, uh, we, uh, yeah, it's, a. Uh, it looks like you can still get the third edition. Uh, so if you're coming to Toronto, uh, let me know and I'll, yeah. uh, and I'll pick, pick some up for you. Oh, or I've, you. I've, I've got some to, you can taste that here, you know, at home, but unfortunately uh, that's going to be it for cast strength. Uh, lot 40. It's a um, shame. For, for at least this year, next year is a different story. And there's, they're definitely um, the company's releasing other products as well to kind of help, but you know, because the whole market and changes with, with coronavirus and all that, it's just, it's, I guess it had an effect everywhere really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, um, the barrel bourbon, uh, I've got the 23 here, uh, which I hear that's almost sold out. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess, I don't know, I don't even know where to start this conversation, kind of how, I mean, I think you've answered the question. You, you put together the best batch of barrels from batch to batch to batch for the best flavor profile. Um, but it does sound like you start with like a, with a vision or a goal for a flavor profile. You, you pick five barrels that you really enjoy the flavor of, and you, now you're kind of, working with those yeah, X amount of barrels. I, I don't want to say specifically five, but it's usually, no, no, I understand. Yeah, there's yeah. usually one idea and or set of barrels that Joe and Tripp, who's our uh, master distiller, uh, who worked for Brown Foreman for a long time and uh, worked for Jefferson's and um, has been blending with Joe for, I don't know, five years now or so. Uh, and then Nick, who's our single barrel coordinator, but has joined the blending team. Uh, they usually have an idea of, what they want to be the, the core identity of a batch. And then mm-hmm. they, they sort of add on to that. Um, whether it's a set of more delicate cogeners that they're finding in a, in a bunch of barrels that are otherwise very different. So we call that a likeness batch when the, the mm-hmm. core identity of it is one small thing that's similar about a lot of the barrels. Um, or uh, what we call a contrast batch, which is when uh, there's a set of barrels that are all really similar. And then we, add very different things into it to, to make it more complex and interesting. Um, but the, the way that we get to the end usually takes a bunch of twists and turns because there's what we think will happen. And then there's what actually happens. Um, right. and so, uh, batch 23, for instance, like I find 23 to have this like wonderful, like almost toasted orange note. If you think about the fruit character, it's a very citrusy bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's it's a really loud and sort of thick and opulent bourbon. It's on the scale of like easy to drink sweetness. It's very in the easy to drink sweet world, even though it's at cast strength. Um, right. And it's and even the color of it is pretty bright and vibrant. Uh, in the wine world, what you'd call brilliant, so it like deflects light in a way that it seems like light. It doesn't absorb light as much. Um, and maybe that's like what I know about it. Speaking a little bit too hard, but uh, it's just this like really bright, vibrant, cast strength bourbon. Uh, and the base of it 
was this like two sets of a 10 and a 12 year old really fruit forward, almost like, I don't want to say less oaky, but less astringent style of bourbon, just like really juicy and easy to drink. Um, And it was, I say beefed out, but what I was talking about before, there was a sort of tannin backbone put into it to add some structure to those because easy to drink doesn't make you great. It makes you easy to drink. And bourbon is kind of objectively delicious unless it's over-oaked or problematic in the dis- in the way it's distilled. Right. Um, and so Joe and Tripp and Nick really needed to like bring some structure into it to make it still a serious bottle of bourbon. Um, mm-hmm. And in doing that, uh, hit an impasse where there was one balance that they liked for the flavor and there was one balance that they liked for the structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they could not get the two together. And so they wound up using uh, a few, I think it ended up being like eight or so, but I don't remember exactly, uh, lower proof yields on 15-year-old bourbons. So these 15-year-old mm-hmm. bourbons that had fallen under 100, 100 proof uh, still at cast strength um, right? to sort of take the one that they liked the flavor of but didn't like the structure of and uh, tone it down. So like... It's funny, we talk about watering down. We don't water down at all, but we do use lower proof yield barrels sometimes to bring heat out of a blend. Um, right. And so ironically for this blend and a couple other things we've done in the past year, the last edition was by far the most expensive per ounce or gallon edition that we put in it. And it was using these like amazingly easy to drink, lower proofing 15 year old barrels mm. to tone down the volume because it, it it was it was speaking so loud that you couldn't hear the intricacies anymore uh that that's amazing that's you described it perfectly because in my notes i was like wow this is it, it has almost that syrupy sweet note to it but it, because of the kind of alcohol content in there the spiciness and just the, the, the you know that kind of that that spice notes it, it just all it all works and i couldn't imagine this being you know hotter for example because i think that would have overcome uh, what I enjoy about it. So uh, I think that's that's really it's a really interesting to kind of hear how it was built and kind of seeing that those elements come together to that to that point. Uh, the um, I, just kind of for my uh, education, uh, you know, I don't always drink a lot of um, um, procured bottles from Tennessee uh, barrels from Tennessee. Where do you see the like? Because I, I think like you know, Indiana would kind of get the flavor profile. I think generally Kentucky from a lot of producers that sell barrels we kind of get the profile and then uh, tell me like, where does Tennessee fit into the, I guess Indiana is easy to guess because it's MGP, but then, you know, kind of Kentucky, there's a few distilleries and then of course, well, more than a few. And then in Tennessee. So where, where do you see kind of the Tennessee flavor profile f- typically fitting into your, into your blending process? Yeah. I think what's difficult about that question is there, when you're talking about where barrels come from, there are brands that have flavor profiles, but they are usually barrels that are selected specific recipes or, uh, rickhouse locations. And then there's all mm-hmm. sorts of like R and D off profile or sold when they're younger or older than the brands that exist from that distillery. And so right. there, there isn't really a good answer to that because the climate in Tennessee and Kentucky is pretty similar. And with the exception of a few distilleries, the sort of yeast, the way that the yeast speaks is not always loud enough to speak over the where place in the warehouse it was or the, sure. the, the toast level or even just like the luck of the draw in terms of staves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are a few distilleries that uh, I'm not going to no, name, but some that are really iconic for one specific yeast strain they use or for uh, multiple mm-hmm. yeast strains they use. Uh, and so I, I don't really have an answer for what the style of Tennessee is. Uh, I know that we like our bourbons to be palatable at cast strength and generally Trip and Joe's palates lean a little bit towards the sweeter, more opulent style of bourbon. Mm-hmm. And so we, even though we're looking for barrels to use as ingredients in every way, we are especially looking for big sets of barrels all the time that uh, bring that like ease and comfort. The reason why people like bourbon, in my opinion, to blends that uh, right. if, if you're going to put something together that is too difficult to enjoy, there's no reason to keep it in the bourbon category. There's a million cool things you can do when you're blending whiskey that disqualify it from bourbon. And so if you want to make something delicious and difficult, like use something peated, like use something that has neutral oak, use something that was entered at over 125. Like there's all sorts of cool things you can do that would just disqualify it from bourbon. Um, So yeah, I guess. That's a great answer. Yeah. uh, I, we as a company as of now, and I I can't promise this won't ever change, but our feeling right now is uh, bourbon is a really narrow canon. And what Mm -hmm. makes bourbons great versus not great are minute, decisions. Uh, because if you follow the rules, there's not so many things you can do. And so when we finish things, we pull it out of the bourbon category, even if the base of it was bourbon. Um, and we use bourbon as an ingredient in a lot of whiskeys, but we call it whiskey when we're combining it with it, like the dovetail, which I believe you have a, a sample of as well. A yeah. huge part of dovetail is bourbon that's finished in late bottle vintage port and bourbon that's finished in black strap molasses rum casks. Um, right. but we're, we're not going to call that a bourbon. It's not a bourbon. Um, and we're not going to, even though we will talk about the bourbon as an ingredient, we're not going to try to mislead anyone into thinking they're buying a bourbon. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a natural, natural fit into, to dovetail. So that's a finished, uh, a bourbon finished product that you have out all year round. It's a regular. Um, yeah. So dovetail, when we first released it, uh, we thought it was going to be this like nerdy 600 case release that no one would notice and it would leak out. And then uh, a year or two later, someone would write about how it was really good and there would be a craze and it would be fun, but not make a big, not make a big splash. Um, right. And we released it in the middle of December, two years ago, I want to say 2018. Um, uh-huh. And it sold out immediately. And huh. uh, I don't know if you've ever talked to someone else from a brand about release schedule decisions, but December is not a good time to release a new product. Yeah. No distributor wants a new launch in December. December's like, just hold on. Uh, and yeah, so we yeah. didn't we see didn't, what sells out. Yeah. Yeah. And just like uh, replenishing the, the positions you got on shelves and behind bars throughout the year. In December, no one's making any changes. They're just buying what they had. Um, and so we weren't that careful with limiting or allocating it because. We didn't, there were 600 cases we knew it would sell. We just, we didn't want to cause problems. It wasn't worth starting a fight with anyone about. And it sold out so quickly that we thought, okay, well, like, how do we synthesize our philosophy about caring about things being the best they can be and not the same while also making dovetail again? And so we had had this really cool story that happened with Mike Dunn offering to trade us empty barrels from Dunn Vineyards, which is like one of the truly historic wine producers in Napa Valley um, for whiskey. Cause he drinks whiskey and like 
it was like two family owned companies just deciding to work together almost casually. Um, uh-huh. uh, and we went back to him. We were like, we need more barrels. And he was like, cool. I want more whiskey. And so we just like <laughs> did that. And, uh, we decided that we will always use the same three ingredients for dovetail. It'll always be mm-hmm. Indiana whiskey finished in Dunn Cabernet barrels. And it'll always be uh, bourbon finished in blackstrap molasses and late bottle vintage port pipes but we're okay. not going to try to match the proof. And so we maximize the blend of those three every time we release it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the flavor profiles are always very similar, but the proof changes a little bit and the percentages of whichever, uh, the, the like balance in terms of liquid gallons changes a little bit too because we want to make it as best we can. Um, right. And so I, I'm not sure which, do you have a 750 or a, or a sample flask? Uh, sample flask. It's a uh, 124.34. And does it have the like uh, crest shaped label on it, or is it a, a rectangular label? Oh, it's just like a. It's rectangular. Okay, yeah. so it's not it's not the real front label. But uh, what Joe and Trip do for fun now is they find a different place on the front or the back label of each subsequent vatting of uh, dovetail to Easter egg which number dovetail it is. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, and so it's not. It is. It's the same UPC. It's the same setup. It's the same idea. It's always the same three ingredients. But for the people who are really chasers of whiskey, you can figure out which release it was from us. It's just going to, mm-hmm. you have to find it every time. Uh, oh, so sometimes great. it's no, on it, the strip seal and sometimes on the front label, sometimes on the back label. Uh, it's our like Easter egg game that we play. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And it's, it's another uh, terrific example. Like I think the, you know, these are all really high scoring whiskeys, no matter how you cut it, every single one of these are, are, are high scoring. I uh, do you have, um, I guess you don't really have an entry level whiskey then that you would consider entry level or, or uh, yeah. you, are you going that direction? Our least expensive whiskey is a project we do called the infinite barrel project, which is a, okay. an ongoing world whiskey blend. It's a, a 2000 gallon tank that we have that we bottle about 200 gallons of, and then we rebalance with either the same ingredients or older versions of the same ingredients, or occasionally we introduce a small amount of a new ingredient in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and there's a bottling date on every bottle. And so you can see where in the evolution of the infinity barrel or tank you are, uh, right. but each release to release changes only a very small amount. And that's less expensive only because the cost of releasing a product is very high. And so knowing that it will always exist allowed us to amortize that across uh, infinity years instead of mm-hmm. 2000 cases. Um, right. And so it's our entry level price wise, but it is not an entry level whiskey. It's actually one of the more complicated whiskeys we make. And so uh, we actually, if, if we have to guess blind, we recommend Dovetail as, as sort of the first thing for people to try from us, unless they're a specifically a bourbon drinker, because mm-hmm. uh, Dovetail has that weight and that opulence of bourbon, but it also yeah. is remarkably easy to drink for something that's proof. And it's very fruity and, and has a little bit more residual sugar than, than bourbon does because of the rum finish and the port finish. Um, and so it's like kind of an it's it's a nerdy whiskey, but it's an easy whiskey to like. And so if someone's buying a gift, or if someone's like, "What's your company all about?" I'm buying one bottle. What should it be? Uh, we actually think that Dovetail sort of tells the story of what we want to do as completely as anything else. 
Uh, from from a tasting notes perspective, I just got a million flavor notes from it. It, it just continued like Duffdale. It just keeps giving, giving, and giving. You can hold on to it for a little while, and it just keeps maturing on your palate and in the glass. Uh, so that, I would, that's a great place to start. Um, I, I will say too, like uh, you know, we, we talk a little bit about marketing and bottles and and, and kind of labeling, and you, you've done a great job. In fact, I I had this. I've I've been I've been proven naive in a few instances with this. I was like I was like if I thought a bottle looked too good on the shelves, I almost thought oh it's just a marketing company that you know is just pitching out the same thing that everybody else is. And I, I feel like your your bottle shape and and marketing is, is exactly that. It's so perfect. I'm like, okay, are they really? And then of course, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I, I, I had an American friend that kept bringing me stuff up and I'm just like, wow, everything I taste has been so delicious. Um, and learning more about how much, you know, how you know how much the effort that's behind the whiskey how much that comes through on the palate and how flavorful it is and interesting they are to drink really brings everything together for me uh i love the you know i love the the you can really geek out about the back what batch is this of, of dovetail um just terrific tell me about the the private release whiskey uh that you that you have yeah thank you for asking about that just because it's been like the biggest pleasure and also bane of my existence for the past couple months um <laughs> we it actually, the, the concept started with rum in September of last year, where we, uh, some really amazing Caribbean rum became available to us, but it was already in food grade totes because getting actual mm-hmm. barrels stateside, though we've done it a couple times from the Caribbean, is very, very difficult and dangerous um, in terms of like leakage and stuff. And I came from the rum industry and more and more the bourbon world and the rum world are sort of hitting each other in a really nice way. Um, and so we had this idea of, we want to make as many really interesting, unique cask strength blends of the rum that we had available to us as possible and have them be cohesive as a set, but allow people to buy them the way that you would buy single barrels of bourbon and also allow people to buy them bottle by bottle or case by case. Um, and so we made, uh, 36 variations on the same blend of five rums Hmm. and each marrying cask was a different finish though there's a couple that there's more than one of the same finish uh so each one was a different percentage of barbados and two distilleries from jamaica and one distillery from martinique and one distillery from guiana although there's only one distillery in guiana so everyone knows what it is um (laughs) and uh but each one was a different percentage blend in a different cask and Again, it was one of those situations where we thought, you know, MSRP $110 rum from a bourbon producer, like this is going to last a while. And though a lot of them are still available on shelves or from distributors, we sold out of them to our distribution network in two months. Hmm. Um, And so what we learned from that is, first of all, it's worth the trouble for us because we can think about things on a really small level and we can experiment on a really small level and that uh, that micro level of, I don't want to say customization because we do all of it, but, uh, specific limited choice is something that a lot of companies, pretty much any other company is not willing to go through to get to consumers. Uh, the only thing that people really are willing to do is sell single barrels right now. And, uh, we, uh, acquired this really peculiar set of 18 year old Kentucky whiskey barrels at the beginning of this year. Uh, sort of end of last year. And some of them we released as single barrels because we really loved them, but some of them were really hot and out of balance. And so we made four different blends of whiskey, uh, 
mostly 18 year old and then a little bit of of slightly younger whiskey that had different component different like things about it that we liked mm-hmm. uh and we started with 24 but then we very quickly made 48 more so it's really 72 <laughs> unique whiskey blends so it's those four ingredients but in 72 different ratios um right. and not every blend has all four so if you think of like factorial like the the ones with the parentheses around the exclamation point versus not around the exclamation point in how many options there are. If anyone remembers uh-huh. that from yeah, you know, vaguely, yeah, yeah, math and when they were fifteen, um, there's a there's like infinite different options of of blends there. But we made seventy two and we had twenty seven different finishes on the seventy two different releases, and wow. they are all somewhere between one hundred and thirty and one hundred and eighty bottles, and that's it. Um, so if you go to our website which is I'll just plug it because I can barrel bourbon.com with two barrel with two L's. Uh, there's an, a section for the private release whiskeys and it lists right now. We only have the first 24 because they've hit the market, but the other 48 are coming up soon. It lists what oh. they are and how, what they were finished in. And also if the place that bought it has given us permission to name them where you can get it. Right. Uh, right. What is crazy about, doing this in America is when we did it with the rums, none of the rums said the finish on the label. It was just like we used a different marrying tank for each one. It, they happened to be barrels that had been used for other things. So mm-hmm. you could go to the website and look it up, but it wasn't, it wasn't the labeling complication. With the whiskeys, uh, both for transparency's sake and for marketing purposes, we decided it was really important to list it on the label. And right. so each one of the 72 is its own label design and each one of the 27 finishes is its own unique cola that we had to have approved, which means each one is a different brand registration in every state. Oh, wow. So there's a (laughs) monster of a project. Yeah. It was hundreds of different pieces of paperwork just to make them available to sell to distributors. Yeah. Um, And everyone thought we were crazy. Uh, And I went crazy me and and uh joe's wife Danny, yeah, yeah, who does a lot of the like really painstaking back-end logistics of the company too uh the man hours on just making sure that that it was like approved to sell what we needed to sell in different places was wild uh but the we get so many emails every day and from distributors but also from consumers about like can i see this list online where can i get them do you have a do you have a email address or a phone number for this store. Uh, is there another one with this finish coming out? I went to the store and it sold out. We had a store in, in Mississippi that had a, a port finish and it, right. it sold out in two hours. Um, and Mississippi is not a shipping state. So it's like 150 people like called in and pre-bought for pickup. Right. So in two hours, um, and Mississippi is also a state where like, that's the only one that we allocated to Mississippi. So like, that's it for now, but we have, we're working on another release of them. Um, it's, I think like, so probably the most complicated and ambitious whiskey producing project that has happened in America for some time, if ever. Uh, but it's being accepted and understood so quickly that it's like, never should a, a, a company that makes whiskey underestimate how willing to chase down and also how willing to experiment whiskey drinkers are because uh, we said like, here's 72 like very, very complicated whiskeys that are high proof and expensive and don't fall into any real category. And some of the finishes are so obscure that people haven't even heard of them and everyone wants them anyway. Um, 
and it, to us, it just means like we, we can we can push the envelope as far as we want, which is just like an amazing thing to think about for the next couple of years. No, that, that's great. I mean, this is what I love about the whiskey world. And I always say, like, support the brands you enjoy. If you if you enjoy that small batch or single barrel or what have you, buy, buy, buy. Because here you are in a position where you do have kind of the marketplace presence and, and the ability to do that. Because certainly if you had released this five years ago, the reaction would have not been the same. But now you do have that fan base. And now what a great reward to your biggest fans is to release something that, I mean, unless you're in kind of in the know, you wouldn't know what to buy or you wouldn't know to pre-buy it or what have you. But but you have that audience and you, you're able to bring people whiskey that they wouldn't and rum and other things, other spirits that you wouldn't normally uh, be able to do. Um, so that's incredible. Um, you know, so you, you also have like a single barrel program as well, I assume you've got, you can, people can buy barrels from you as well. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we do a variety of different releases of single barrels, mostly bourbons, but we also do Canadian rye barrels and Indiana rye barrels. Oh, uh, okay. uh, our single barrel program is unique in that first of all every barrel is bottled at its own unique cask strength and that mm-hmm. uh we only release single barrels that joe and trip and nick have identified as sort of in balance by themselves and so when we're judging barrels there's barrels we love as com- as components in other whiskey and there's barrels we love as the barrel itself and they do not always they're not the same thing all the time um and so the single right. barrels are we don't believe that any single barrel is is better for batches and in fact I might put my foot in my mouth here, but like I'm more proud of our blends than I am of our single barrel program in sure. in terms Makes of sense. the whiskey. Though I feel the yeah. execution of the single barrel program is something that that we owe to Nick for all of the details that she keeps track of. Um, but anything that we're putting in a single barrel bottle is because we feel it's a sort of superior whiskey standalone by itself. Right. Um, right. The private release option for us was a way of synthesizing those two philosophies which were kind of at odds otherwise which is we think of ourselves as a really progressive detail-oriented blender and then the fastest growing part of our portfolio was our single barrels and that didn't make a lot of sense and so we Mm -hmm. wanted to be able to offer the same collectible limited choice-oriented experience with making picks from what we felt were things that were greater than the substance of their parts Um, and so our single barrel program is not going anywhere, but the hope would be that we would have a complimentary private release program next to the single barrel program for every category that we work in. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, well, uh, we're going to do uh, patron only. Uh, I'm going to do ask you a couple of questions for, for patrons of the podcast. Um, but uh, I wanted to thank you for coming on. I really, I love a distillery. Well, I love a whiskey maker that takes the best of all the distilleries and, and, and blends, you know, the best together like this. And I'm a big fan of what you are, you're doing and what your, your group's doing. Um, are you, where, where can people follow you on the social medias? Uh, you got Instagram, uh, so Twitter. Yeah, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, it's all barrel bourbon barrel with, with two L's. Um, okay. Yeah. We're, we're very easy to find. Uh, and we are very responsive on all the platforms. We, we keep ourselves very whiskey focused in the things that we're posting about, but we, uh, we look at them every day. Nice. Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, really g- terrific time. Thank you so much. And we'll, uh, we'll do a little quick, quick uh, question answer uh, for the patrons. Wonderful. Cheers. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you. Yep. Two, three.